0: From Gimlet Media, this is The Nod, a show about Black culture from Blackness's biggest
1: fans. I'm Brittany Luce. And I'm Eric Eddings.
2: So I have not a gospel of disruption or innovation or a triple bottom line. I do not have a gospel of faith to share with you today, in fact. I have and I offer a gospel of doubt. The gospel of doubt does not ask that you stop believing. It asks that you believe a new thing, that it is possible not to believe. You may have watched this TED
1: Talk. It's called The Gospel of Doubt, and it was delivered in 2016 by Casey Gerald, an entrepreneur at the time. To date, it has nearly 2 million views.
2: The gospel of doubt means that it is possible that we, on this stage, in this room, are wrong. Because it raises the question, why, with all the power that we hold in our hands, why are people still suffering so bad?
1: This talk marks the start of Gerald publicly reckoning with his origin story, an origin story he and others often held up as proof of the American dream. Gerald grew up poor in a majority black neighborhood in Oak Cliff, Texas, just outside of Dallas. His father went to prison when he was a preteen, and his mother often disappeared for years at a time. So his grandmother stepped in, and she raised him as an evangelical Christian, which meant he had to hide his sexuality as a young gay man. And when he turned 18, he headed to Yale to play football.
2: With the faith that my journey from Oak Cliff, Texas was a chance to leave behind all the challenges I had known broken dreams and broken bodies I had seen. And
1: then to Wall Street.
2: I held on when I showed up at Lehman Brothers as an intern in 2008. (laughs) So hopeful that that I called home to inform my family that we'd never be poor again.
1: After the financial crash, he worked in politics in D.C. And then he went to Harvard Business School, where in 2014, his class day speech went viral.
2: My friends,
1: my fellow graduates... In the speech, he talks about a nonprofit he co-founded to help small businesses across America and how this kind of work could ultimately save America.
2: In your hands, as well as mine, lies the hope for a new generation of business leaders.  — In which each of us becomes a pioneer. In which each of us decides to travel unknown roads. —
1: After the speech, Gerald landed a spot on the cover of Fast Company magazine. People said he could be the next president or the next major American CEO. He even considered a congressional run, and he was offered a book deal. —
2: And they said, um, you got two models. We can either do something like Dreams for My Father, or we can do something like Audacity of Hope. And that was a real warning sign, man.
1: He didn't take that book deal. Instead, four years later, Gerald wrote a memoir that rejects any rags-to-riches conventions. His book is called There Will Be No Miracles Here. Doesn't get any realer than that. And his message throughout is clear. His life isn't an example of the American dream. It's actually proof that it's a myth. A myth that ultimately hurts black people, brown people, basically anyone who isn't white, wealthy, straight, able-bodied, the list goes on. It's rare to find work so political, so personal, and so poetic.
2: Y'all read it? Huh, yeah, it's amazing. It's the you, are,
0: you are a hell of a writer. Y'all are Writing. so
2: good. Y'all, are, first of all, I'm so grateful for this. Y'all are the first black people I've talked to about this book. Really? It's shocking to me. While we talked, how he would just keep you... stringing together these beautiful yet
1: precise sentences for feelings and thoughts I never knew how to express. Honestly, this man has done so much self-reflection that it just rubs off on you. We were a little surprised by how brutally honest he is about where he went wrong. How willingly he holds himself accountable for being complicit in the myth of the American dream.
2: You know, I had achieved by my late 20s about everything a kid is supposed to achieve in this society. Um, but uh, but I was very cracked up. Hmm. I wouldn't necessarily say I was having a nervous breakdown, but it was pretty close, I think, and mm. I was really sad. And a lot of my friends who had made this similar kind of American dream, quote-unquote, journey were really cracked up, and the world obviously was cracked up. So I set out with this book to trace those cracks. Yeah, But I think— The most honest place this book came from, and I've never said this, um, may never say it again, the most honest place this book came from was a realization that I was being used to mislead black children.
0: Mm.
2: I was raised around, everybody in my neighborhood was black. Uh, It was a completely segregated community. And one thing that was almost akin to cursing God was fucking over other black people. Mm-hmm. And so in some ways, like this book does a lot of stuff, but the most honest place was that I just refused to be complicit in misleading my own people.
1: Yeah, Honestly, I mean, if you watch those are er, like that the Harvard speech, you know, you kind of expect like like if you if you hear oh that person wrote a book, yes. you're maybe going to expect a narrative like like what they presented to you, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um but it's painfully clear that like that is not the story you are setting out to tell. What was the moment that that changed? Was there a moment that it was like crystallized for you that like no, this has to be different?
2: Yeah, man. Let's see, I signed this book deal. I started writing it in June, and I was writing, I was writing. And then in September, one of my closest friends um, from college committed suicide. Hmm. And I had helped recruit him to Yale. He grew up much like I did, but in St. Louis. And he was the first friend I've had who committed suicide. So I went to sleep one day. I had gotten very sad. I couldn't write for a couple days. I went to sleep. And he came to me in a dream, and um, he was sitting in a booth in a diner. And uh, he leaned back, and he said, You know, Casey, we did a lot of things that we wouldn't advise anybody we love to do. Hmm. What do you mean
0: when you say things that you wouldn't advise people you love to do? That is
2: specific. Mm -hmm. I say toward the end of the book, and I'm talking about the aftermath of my friend mm-hmm. taking his life and what I learned from it, especially because part of the reason we were so close is that we ran a group at Yale called the Yale Black Men's Union. And I said I drove him, my friend, I drove them all to be the best, hmm. to be perfect. What I did not do was drive them to be whole, to be free. I went back. They have this freshman induction for the Black Men's Union. And there was an administrator uh, who was the first black dean of Yale College. And he stands up before 50 18-year-old black boys, and he says, hey, if you're going to be a token, just be the best token you can be. Wow. Yeah. I was sick. So I got up afterwards. I said, listen, we've gotten very good at making great dead men. Hmm. What we really have to figure out how to do is make free people.
1: You actually write it a beautiful way in the book. You say, from the right angle, a boy pulling himself up by the bootstraps looks like suicide. Can you just talk a bit more about how that's a dead end, how that doesn't work out for us?
2: Mm. Well, uh, here we are. Next year, it'll be 400 years that black people have been in what is now America. You know, my family's been in Texas since before the Civil War. Like, I'm, you know, pretty thoroughly slave black. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, we've been (laughs) here, okay? You know, my grandmother's grandfather was born a slave. And the basic premise has been, hey, y'all, if you civilize yourselves, If you learn how to speak our language, you learn how to worship our God, how to get into our schools and get a mortgage and, you know, buy a house and keep a job, you will at some point be treated as real human beings, as equal and full citizens. You might even be president. Well, what's beautiful about being a young black person in the 21st century, is that we lived to see the fulfillment of that idea. And we also learned that you could fulfill that idea and still be a nigger. Mm. You could fulfill that idea and still be subject Mm -hmm. to the terroristic violence of the police. You could fulfill that idea and lose yourself. I remember when I was at Yale, there was somebody had spray painted nigger school on one of the uh, residential colleges which mm-hmm. I thought was kind of funny and <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was kind of funny you know my only question on my recruiting visit was to these two boys I said y'all not say nigger here and they were like uh no <laughs> anyway so I was actually kind of thrilled to see somebody you know call me a nigger uh, Yeah. so anyway this was unacceptable to so much of the black community so uh, of course a protest was called so they had this poster. i never forget this poster said, I do not pay $50,000 a year to be called a nigger. And I thought that was beautiful because it, it highlighted this deep sickness, mm. this belief that, well, there's something I can do mm-hmm. that will make me more than a nigger. It will make me a black person. It would make me a citizen. It would make me a Yale student. I'm not a nigga. i pay $50,000 a year for two I mean, this is nuts. You see what I'm saying? So um, it's, that idea is very comforting, of okay. course, that all you got to do is get more niggas into Harvard. You know, I think about when Kanye dropped College Dropout, why it meant, I think so much to us and we were like 17, 18 years yeah. old, me and my yeah. friends. It was like he was the first person that told us, hey, like, yeah, you can go to college, but don't play yourself. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> that was huge, man. Nobody had ever said anything like that.
0: We live in the American dream. For highest up, got the lowest self-esteem. The prettiest people
1: do the ugliest things. But a road to riches and diamond rings. Floss because they the greatest. We trying to buy back our forty acres. And for that paper, look cattle low, we a stoop. Even if you in a band, you still a nigga. Come on, come on. And when it
0: falls down, who you gonna You know, you're talking about this idea of success and the pursuit of the American dream. What do you think you lost in pursuit of the American dream?
2: I never felt that I was chasing the American dream. I was chasing some sense of self-worth, though. Mm-hmm. And what I lost in chasing my self-worth in the approval of others was that I lost myself this goes all the way back to what my boy Jesus said. <laughs> <laughs> no, nah, that wasn't, that was that wasn't Jesus. That was my nigga, Paul. Yeah. <laughs> Paul, the apostle. I love that. Paul is off the chain. Paul says, what would it profit a man to gain this whole world and lose his soul? Hmm. Yeah, you can go to Yale you can go and decide to be a politician or run for office. You can decide that you want to be a millionaire. Mm-hmm. But in doing that, you will be tempted every day, every hour to cut off pieces of yourself, to ignore the toll that is taken on you. And you will be told that that bargain is worth it. And All I'm saying is it's not. Mm. I'll give you a very specific example of something deeper, this sort of political thing that I'm doing, trying to do in the book. My mother called me the other day. My mother disappeared when I was 13. She came back when I was 18 just to fill in the plot. She called, she had seen an interview I did on C-SPAN. There's a line in the book that says, I've been on this earth for 30 years and I've never met a single faggot starting with myself who survived without finding another place, real or imagined, to call home. She called. She said, Hey, I saw your interview. You know I keep up with you. And I just had to tell you, you are a man. You're not a faggot. You're not a punk. Let me tell you the difference. Uh, You are prominent. You know how to speak. You're educated. You dress well. You are an upstanding person who just happens to be gay. So don't put yourself over there when you're over here. Now, after I got past the shock and rage, I was very grateful because it's rare that you get this kind of material in my line of work. (laughs) Okay? Because it got to the heart of what I'm trying to do with this book. You know, it is in part a warning about the cost of this vision of success we're sold. But it's also... A sort of more subtle but hopefully more radical political invitation for all of us who have quote-unquote made it to put ourselves back over there, to put ourselves over there with the faggots, over there with the niggas. Either all of us are going to be faggots or none of us can be faggots. Either all of us are going to be niggas or none of us are going to be niggas. Um, We, as the faggots, as the niggas, have to uh, refuse the invitation to invest in ways to differentiate ourselves from our comrades.
1: After the break, Casey explains the difference between authors and
2: rappers. The rappers are talking about real life. And the writers have their heads up their ass.
0: One of the things that really hooked me when I started the book is, like, your voice is... So not like that person who's up on the pedestal, the person up on the mountaintop wearing the washed silk robe and telling you this is how it needs to be done. The the voice that you write in sounds like what—like the last 10 thoughts I think that any of us have before we go to sleep at night. You know what I mean? It's kind of like, okay, well, this happened. fuck that person. I screwed this up. I have a meeting tomorrow at 9 o'clock and not 10 o'clock. Yeah. Good night. Like that. I love that. Like, that voice is so like, I was like, yeah. yo, like that tone, was that, yeah. was that purposeful?
2: Oh, yeah. Of course it was purposeful. If these books, if these words, if the language, if the literature is going to be of any value to the people I want to be of value to, then it's got to be true to the raw, strange expression of human experience. You know, I think about what Kendrick says on section 80, he says I'm not on the not outside, on looking outside looking in. in. I'm not on the inside, inside looking, out.
1: looking out. I'm in the dead center looking around. You ever seen a newborn baby?
2: I have I never have experienced my life on the margins of nothing. And I wanted the book not to be some report from some marginalized Faction of society, I don't even know what the hell that means.
1: I'm not the next pop star, I'm not the next socially
2: aware rapper. I am over dope instrumentation. Kick them, off. Now fuck them up, Terry. The reason that rappers are making the most important music is because the rappers are talking about real life and the writers have their heads up their ass. Mm. Leroy Jones, before he was a Mira Baraka, <laughs> gave an incredible speech, which I just found recently, called The Myth of a Negro Literature. <laughs> and he said, and this is him, don't blame me for this. He, he said, the only legacy, I'm paraphrasing, of the Negro in l- American literature is a legacy of absolute mediocrity because it has been created by um, bourgeois Negroes who are trying to convince themselves and white people that they're civilized. And in doing so, they have avoided the role of art, which is to speak to the truth of human experience. <laughs> I mean, he goes in. I say, well, yo, this is crazy. But there's a little truth in it. Charlie Parker used to say, if you, if you don't live it, it can't come out your horn. You know, when you hear Louis Armstrong play Stardust, you know, uh, Stanley Crash talks about this beautifully. When you hear Louis Armstrong play Stardust and before he gets it, it's been this sort of, you know, white jazz standard. Da, 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 da. paradise where roses grew, though I dream in vain, in my heart it will remain. My stardust melody, the memory of love's refrain. Lou <laughs> takes Stardust and he smashes the son of a bitch to pieces. I mean it's like it blows the whole thing open.
1: In my heart it will remain
0: remote. My stardust melody. So-
2: I think uh, we have yet to fully do that in so many corners of literature. We have buttoned up language to try to perform being civilized. I think we ought to do to the language what Louis Armstrong did to Stardust. We ought to blow the son of a bitch open so you hear it and you can never hear Stardust. Who wants to hear Stardust (laughs) the old way once you heard? Louis Armstrong, do it, man. It's it's, it's a new dimension.
1: So much of your other speeches were a vision for how things could be better, how things could change. Do you still have those aspirations for playing your part in changing the world? Is that different now?
2: Yes. Um, this question of change in the world, I I used to be in the camp of, oh, I want to change the world. And then I said, you know, I want to end unnecessary human suffering. That for me felt good. And from that standpoint, I think this book fits into it. Um, I felt so alone for so much of my childhood through so many things and I could have really used the book to help guide me through a really confusing and hard journey I almost cried thinking about it I was 14 when Lauryn Hill released the unplugged album Mm -hmm. that album for me is almost a sacred text I listened to that album over and, over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. And what's so incredible about Lauren Hill on that album is that almost everything she said holds up.
0: See, what key I want to do this in?
2: When she talks about Everybody knows um, that the job of repentance is to let go of all the stuff that's killing you.
0: Everybody knows that they're
2: guilty
0: Resting on their conscience, eating their inside It's freedom
2: When she talks about I get out of all your boxes I get
0: out I get out of all your boxes I get out
2: you can't hold me down in chains. Father, free me from this bondage. Knowing my condition is the reason I must change. The
0: I must change. Hmm. Your stinking resolution is no type of solution. Preventing me from freedom, maintaining your pollution. I won't support your lie no more
2: it taught me a lot at 14. I didn't I didn't have language for it. You know what I mean? I was just like, you know, homeless, you know, whatever. But it spoke to me and it's sort of like a kind of divine gift that that showed up when I needed it most.
0: You just want to use me. You say love then abuse
2: me. And I felt that if I could write a book that did for some kid what the unplugged album did for 14 year old me, then it wouldn't have been in vain. Working, repressing me
0: to death. Huh? Cause now I'm choosing life, you I'll take the sacrifice, yo. If everything must go, then go. That's how I choose to live. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, Casey, seriously, it it means a lot. Reading the book, it was uh, it was a powerful experience. So, thank you, thank you for this time.
2: Thank you, seriously. Yeah, thank you. It's been great. It this has been. So
0: it, it has been. It's been really great.
1: Casey oh. Gerald's memoir is out now. It's called "There Will Be No Miracles Here." The Nod is produced by me, Eric Eddings, with Brittany Luce, Kay Parkinson-Morgan, and Wallace Mack. Our senior producer is Sara Abdurrahman. We are edited by Emmanuel Barry and Jorge Jess. Fact-checking by Max Gibson. The show was mixed by Cedric Wilson. Our theme music is by Khalid B. For additional music credits, visit our website, gimletmedia.com slash The Nod. Also... If you aren't already following us on Twitter and Instagram, get on it. We are at The Nod Show everywhere. And after you follow, add us or leave a comment with the next book you're excited to read. And if you're looking for another episode of The Nod to listen to, I highly recommend you check out our episode, Ready, Set, Buy Black. Brittany and I are going a scavenger hunt at Black-owned businesses, and it's absolutely the best thing to get you in the mood for this year's Black Friday.
2: I think you know, Jesus used to say Jesus used to say I said it like My <laughs> homie. My boy. My boy, you know, I hate he moved. Um <laughs>